Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's the 72nd episode, and I'm here after the Japanese Grand Prix where the Constructors' Champions have been crowned. But before we get to that, first, a quick reminder to check out the link tree in the description. It has links to the pages that you can find this podcast, like my YouTube channel, Break Bias Twitter, and TikTok. It also has my email address if you'd like to contact me, as well as my personal Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Now, let's talk about the action in Suzuka. Well, the deserving Constructors Champions have wrapped it up with races to go, six of them. And what a year this has been for the Red Bull team. But everyone knows that at this point, if you have been following F1 in 2023, whether they're super involved in the sport and they're there every single weekend, whether they're, you know, watching from afar like myself, everyone on YouTube, everyone on social media, People on television, other personalities within and around the sport have all had a million great things to say about how this Red Bull team has performed in 2023 and in 2022. They have absolutely nailed these new regulations. They deserve it from, you know, the pit wall with the strategy to the pit crew to the factory to the driving of Max Verstappen. I mean, he would be winning this Constructors' Championship all by himself, so... What else is there to say? You know, it's been said on this podcast a million times by now. So this Japanese Grand Prix was, you know, a reflection of of basically how this season has gone, though, hasn't it? I mean, Max Verstappen, 20 seconds out in front to take the win. Yet the other driver, Sergio Perez, a completely different story. In qualifying, Max Verstappen took pole by almost six tenths to P2 an absolutely sensational lap that was, again, just an absolute treat to watch. Um, and then he went over three quarters of a second faster than Checo in qualifying. And really, no different in the race. Max almost lost the lead to Lando Norris from P3 on the grid. Great start from Lando. Um, but then he positioned his car perfectly, controlled the race from there um, with just a completely faultless effort. Meanwhile, Perez clashed with Hamilton on the opening lap twice, uh, received a safety car, you know, infringement, um, then almost crashed with Magnuson into the hairpin, didn't learn his lesson, and then actually crashed with Magnuson into that same hairpin, spun K-Mag right around. Uh, that meant two front wing pit stops for, for Perez, one from the opening lap, another from the Magnuson incident. That meant basically an eventual retirement for Perez. That was all within 15 laps of the Grand Prix. Then something like 20 laps later, we get this whole fiasco where Perez comes back out of the garage to serve a second five-second penalty. He got one from the safety car, like I said. Um, that was from his ca- his crash with K-Mag, and then he retired again. That was, of course, um, for those of you who don't know, you know, if you take someone out of the race and then you don't serve the penalty... Sometimes that will lead to a grid penalty at the next event. Um, obviously, Red Bull was thinking proactively. They're like, well, you know, we didn't retire the car because it was, you know, dangerous or undrivable. It was just, it was damaged. Um, there was no sense having him do 40 or 60 or 50 more laps. Let's just retire the car. You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to finish in the points anyway. So 
you know, Red Bull got creative and they're like, why don't we send him out and avoid the grid penalty for next race? Are we allowed to do that? That's why they kept him in the car so long. And, you know, the broadcast was showing Perez with his helmet on in the car waiting to go out because they were on the phone with the FIA trying to understand, is this something that we are we are allowed to do? Because, you know, we can't find anything in the rule book that doesn't allow us to, like, unretire the car and send him out. Um, so are we allowed to? They finally got the green light saying it's not against the rules. So they went out, served the penalty, and retired again, which led to a whole bunch of jokes about how the Red Bull uh, team had a double retirement, but Max Verstappen still won the race. Um, A lot of funny memes about that. But, yeah, to me, the whole thing is kind of a silly rule, right? And I've heard reports that the FIA is looking into clearing up that kind of loophole um, so it doesn't happen again because it is kind of, nonsensical right to retire a car and then realize oh well you know this might actually hurt us at the next event if we don't serve this penalty so why don't we just send out a car to go you know he wasn't he wouldn't have been going slowly if he was dangerously slowly then i think there um if he was driving dangerously slow that could have been an issue um but because he was still like somewhat on the pace probably a little bit off of it right it wasn't seen as dangerous, so they could just send him out again and then retire. So, yeah, I think the FIA should probably clear that up. But then it's also a question of, well, what happens to the people that, like, Checo could have just done all his laps, waited, instead of bringing it into the uh, into the garage and retiring it. He could have just done all the laps, then waited, and then uh, did his pe- got his penalty when he got his penalty, and then or served his penalty when he got his penalty and then retired. Like, really, what's the difference, right? So there is a, there is still a way around it, even if they clarify the rule. But also, in my opinion, if you bring the car into the garage, you should be out, no matter what. It's the same, like, if you beach the car on the gravel and you get help, it's the same thing. You put your car in the garage, you're done. So I think that would maybe sort that out, but again... That's not even necessarily going to stop this from happening, right? Because as I said, now people will just keep their cars out on the track to make sure that they can uh, serve the penalty later on. In my opinion, the solution is just it should be a grid penalty, a grid penalty at next uh, the next race. If it significantly ended your own race and it was your fault, then it shouldn't be a penalty at that event because you you, you didn't receive an actual consequence. The consequence should be at the next event regardless of whether you retire your car or not. So to me, that's the solution. Forget the whole nonsense where people would have to stay out or retire the car. Just give them a grid penalty anyway. Um, do I think Perez's you know, incident really deserved a grid penalty? I don't think I would be like super upset about it or think it's like too harsh to give him a three-place grid penalty. However, I will say that it seems like the race direction or the FIA hasn't been really giving out those types of penalties this year. So it would be maybe odd to see that happen here. I wouldn't say this one was even any worse than what he did to Albon in Singapore. So it would maybe be, yeah, a bit harsh. But despite all that mess on, you know, one side of the garage at Red Bull, the weekend still ultimately ended with job done. Uh, they, They secured the Constructors' Championship. Max did it all by himself, The basically the theme of the year. Now it's on to wrapping up the driver's title, which Max can do 
next weekend on a Saturday. How about that? That's kind of interesting. And then um, once Max has that sewn up, maybe some priority will go to Checo to make sure Red Bull can get their first 1-2 in the championship. I know they weren't very happy that Perez couldn't pull that off last year against Charles Leclerc. But I think when talking about second best, McLaren, in terms of teams, we can officially say that McLaren does have at least, if not the second best car, the second best aerodynamic package after Red Bull, right? I mean, Suzuka is a massive aero circuit. They were the only team that was close to Max Verstappen through the S's of Sector 1. You know, they seem to have improved their efficiency a lot. Also, recently, when you think back to uh, Spa, where they were a bit um, caught out there by how draggy they were on the straights. Like, they have had some decent straight line speed at the last two events. They still have this phenomenal rear end that they've had since Austria. Um, You know, Lewis Hamilton was talking about it in Silverstone through uh, Maggots and Beckett's, those fast S's there. you know, they probably still have some inherent issues with their handling characteristics and whatnot that's holding them back slightly. But I think that only hurts them at certain circuits, maybe, or I would say it hurts them at specific circuits just more than others. They have a pretty incredible machine, McLaren, in my opinion. You know, obviously, it doesn't just have the outright downforce of the Red Bull, but it actually, like, kind of dominated Ferrari and Mercedes here like I don't think that can be overlooked yes there were 20 seconds off Red Bull but they were also 10-15 seconds ahead of the next best team which was Ferrari and and Mercedes which were kind of even here like that's pretty incredible and not to mention of course two great driver performances we know uh, the caliber of driver Lando is and he drove excellent all weekend but I would say Piastri probably is who the, who stole the headlines this weekend because he started the weekend with the announcement of a contract extension with McLaren until 2026. And he actually had another cheeky post on uh, X or Twitter or whatever saying, quote, stress-free contract announcement like always. Uh, that's, of course, referencing you know the fiasco with Alpine announcing him as their driver for 2023 last year in like the middle of the night and Piastri having to publicly deny that claim when he woke up. Um, that was some nonsense. But on that same weekend, um, or the same weekend of, uh, of the contract announcement from McLaren, not the Alpine one, he delivers on track as well with P2 in qualifying and then P3 in the race, first rookie to podium since Lance Stroll in 2017. And he also led the race briefly, becoming the first rookie to do that in a decade. He was also driver of the day, although he didn't feel it was his best race performance Lando was much quicker during the second stint and at the end of all the stints, um, you know, putting it down to uh, Piastri, I think, said something about how he does struggle at the races where tire management is uh, one of the, you know, key factors. And that is just something that comes with time in Formula One. You know, Formula One races are a hell of a lot longer than Formula Two ones. So I think that makes a lot of sense. But either way, It's McLaren's best weekend of the year, in my opinion. Silverstone, you could maybe argue, but they didn't get Piastri up on the podium, so they've done it here with a double podium and in dominant fashion over Mercedes and Ferrari. 
I, like I said last episode, I think they can really end this season on a high because of these upcoming tracks too. Like they're just so good in the high speed and medium speed corners. And if there's not like a ton of straights, they're going to be better than Ferrari and Mercedes. Qatar is just a whole bunch of high speed corners. I don't see how they're not incredible there next week. And same goes for Red Bull, mind you. And then the U.S. is kind of similar to Silverstone where they got some fast S's in Sector 1 and some high-speed corners. Like there was the huge, long right-hander in, in Sector 3. I, I don't see how McLaren's not really quick through there. Um, uh, um, I'm, I'm forgetting one of the races. Mexico has some fast S's as well. They might not be great through the final sector. I, I imagine Mercedes will be looking pretty good in the, in the stadium section. But anyway... The point is, they're they're going to be good at the next few tracks. The question, really, is all about can they catch Aston Martin? It's been something brought up on this podcast plenty of times. I discussed it with the King of the Take Boys as well. At this point, I think you have to believe that it can be done. There there may only be six races left, but there are three sprints over the next four as well, and they're all at tracks like I mentioned. McLaren should be strong at. They're good in qualifying. Right now, Stroll isn't sniffing points for Aston Martin, and their only hope is for probably another race like the Dutch Grand Prix where Alonso can get another huge result because just one other big result would be um, quite a large deterrent in McLaren's challenge, I would say. But if Alonso just continues to kind of score the way he's been scoring, just grabbing like P8s to P6s like in that range and McLaren can continue to get like P5s and better from both cars it's going to be a done deal so yeah I, I think that McLaren can do it and a lot of discussion about whether McLaren is the next team to challenge Red Bull everyone called Mika Hakkinen crazy when he called it way earlier in the year when McLaren looked like they were nowhere even close to challenging the Ferraris and the Mercedes let alone the the, the Red Bulls so I would say at this point, you might have to back McLaren. They have the drivers. They seem to have the, the best direction, although I think the might of, of uh, a Ferrari and, and the Mercedes team, you can't deny um, you know the manpower that they have at those teams. So I don't think you can write them off yet, but what a season it has been for McLaren, especially you know since Austria, they, they have been the second best team. So... Full credit to them there. So while, you know, that constructor's battle is heating up between McLaren and Aston Martin, another one is kind of quietly simmering as well. The Ferrari and Mercedes battle for P2. Ferrari has been the top team over the last three races. No surprise with the win in Singapore and then the great performance in Monza. They are closing in on Mercedes. And this is especially notable because of how bad Ferrari started. They were down in P4 because, you know, Leclerc especially had a really shaky start. He, you know, didn't even take a top six finish until round four. He had two DNFs in a P7 in the first three. And then in the first seven rounds, he only had one top five. So, yeah, that's not that's not very good. Um, and it's not like Science at that time was scoring big either. He's definitely been more consistent. He had some P5s and a P4 in Bahrain. But, you know, no, like, P3s or P2s. They were not scoring that many points at the beginning of the year. So they have really clawed that back. Um, Sainz wasn't even on the podium until Monza. Uh, 
So, yeah, it's been a pleasant surprise, I think, for, for Ferrari to be back in that fight and be quick at these past, well, they weren't super quick here, but they were very quick in Singapore and Monza as well. They struggled in Zandvoort. Um, so, yeah, I think even though their pace wasn't great here, it's still a positive to be quicker than Mercedes. Just they were quite a ways off of McLaren here, I would say. But you can still take positives from this because a race like this used to be a death sentence for them, you know, and for their tires in the past, they were brutal in Silverstone, uh, an aero track that I mentioned earlier. Um, you really need a strong rear end. This wasn't bad. It's not often we've seen a Ferrari attacking the Mercedes at the end of race stints, right? I mean, it seemed to always be, even if Ferrari still held on at the end, it was always Mercedes sticking around with that better tire offset and then catching Ferraris at the end of races because their tires would fall off. We've seen it the past year and a half, right? So, you know, looking ahead, can Ferrari with this, um, you know, newly found race pace, I would say, because they've always been strong in qualifying, right? Can they catch Mercedes? Honestly, I think it really comes down to whether Mercedes can pull ahead over the next few weekends. I think sprints typically favor Ferrari um, in their qualifying trim. But I do think that these are some Mercedes tracks coming up. Um, looking right to the end of the year, Vegas and Abu Dhabi, I think Ferrari could be very strong at both those tracks. But I'm not so sure about uh, Qatar, Texas, Mexico, and Brazil. Brazil was the one I forgot about with McLaren. Um it's also important to to um, note how these teams work together um, because I would say look uh, Leclerc and Sainz have been working a little bit better as a team than than Russell and and uh, and Hamilton have right I mean which I think is a perfect segue into the storylines coming out of Mercedes at the minute because I'd say performance wise this was a very discouraging weekend for the Brackley-based uh, team, but somehow Mercedes has managed to make other news because, I mean, where do I even start with this? The drivers, they qualify right next to each other, have some too close for comfort, I guess you could say, racing moments uh, early on, which is especially bad in a race like this when they're not quite as quick as their adversaries and uh, tire management is key. The worst one was probably when Hamilton went off the track and, and lost time to George. And then George would look like he was about to catch him and overpass him, uh, overtake him into a uh, spoon corner. And then Hamilton ran wide there, forced George off the track. And George came on the radio saying like, are we fighting each other or the others? Which I think is a fair point, but thankfully for the Mercedes fans, they ended up on different tire strategies George Russell went for the one stop and, and Lewis was on the two, um, which I think was probably a good idea, all things considered, right? Because who knows how that whole thing could have played out. So it did create another problematic scenario, though, didn't it? Because Hamilton on the two stop caught up to the back of Russell on a one. Everyone was talking how this race was probably going to be a two, possibly a three stop. So to put Russell on a one was kind of surprising. So of course, Hamilton caught back up to him. Signs got undercut by Hamilton. So signs almost 
um, well, was yeah, he was quicker than Hamilton on the final stand at the end of it, right? As I kind of mentioned in the Ferrari breakdown. So Mercedes had kind of a predicament here. They have Russell ahead of both of them, who was driving the slowest by quite some margin. And then it's Hamilton, who's a little bit, you know, slower than Signs. So Hamilton's in trouble from Signs. Russell has to keep both of them behind somehow. So that's, of course, where it got tricky. Mercedes made the decision to team order George to let Lewis through. And then they tried to pull some kind of ridiculous DRS trickery, trickery, kind of similar to how Signs was like pulling Lando along to defend him last weekend in Singapore. It did not work. It doesn't make any sense to do it a traditional circuit like this. It only works in a street circuit um, where overtaking is, is as hard as it is in Singapore. Carlos just breezes past George anyway under traction out of the final corner. Lewis does at least hold on to the to, to P5, so it wasn't a complete disaster class. But it seemed that like neither Lewis or George agreed with that try. George said, just let me keep Lewis ahead or let me stay ahead of Lewis so that, you know, Lewis actually has the tire life to defend from signs. I can keep giving him DRS and then we can both finish ahead. And if there's an opportunity on the last lap, then we can, you know, invert. Where Lewis was like, let me through and let me just drive off into the distance. Screw this DRS trickery. George is screwed anyway. Let's just do that. So both wanted their own thing. They ended up doing neither of those things and doing what the team wanted. And it didn't really work. But, you know, they both did listen to it. They didn't really agree. But anyway, that's something for the debrief. However, a lot has been made of their post-race actions. I would say a lot of fans are speculating that this driver lineup is souring to an extent. You know, with the radio messages and the battling throughout the race, the silence on the in-laps, I think, spoke volumes. Uh, They didn't look at each other post-race when Russell got out of his car and walked past Lewis. Then we got some punchy comments from Hamilton in the media pen. Lewis called it a tough day in the office, saying, you know, that he achieved the maximum, but the team has a lot of work to do. And he is right. This was a really rough weekend performance-wise, as I mentioned. And they have to have the best six months of development they've ever had if they have any sort of chance to catch Red Bull by the end of these regulations. And they need to look at what McLaren is doing. Something that Lewis has been kind of pushing for for a while now. They need to go down the Red Bull route. But then he was asked about the battling with Russell, you know, this weekend. And he said, and I quote, well, for sure, we'll talk online. That's the best way to do it. Our ultimate goal is to try and get ahead of the Ferraris. And that's what my goal was today. And it's to beat the Ferraris in the Constructors' Championship. That's all that matters. We're not fighting for driver's position in the championship because firstly, we're not close. And secondly, we're not fighting for the championship. I think the we're not close comment is what got people the most fired up. Um, And I also think, you know, it's the fact that Lewis is always kind of, uh, sounds very media trained in his his answers to the media sometimes. Um, And always very positive with his messages about the team and, and whatnot. So when these comments from him get a little bit more colorful, people can really tell when Lewis is feeling um, some type of way. And uh, of course, this happens on the weekend uh, that Total Wolf wasn't at the track. Apparently, he was watching and actually had a say on the team orders that took place on track. I have no idea how accurate that is and frankly think it's kind of dumb. But anyways, I think 
what I'll give my opinion on is whether, you know, there is a problem with this driver lineup. I've said before, this is my team. I do sort of unintentionally follow them just a little bit closer than the rest of the grid just because I'm I focus on my team probably a little bit more than the others while I'm watching a race and whatnot. So here's what I say. I I I just don't understand what the alternative would be for Mercedes right now. I think most people agree that this is the best driver lineup in terms of just talent. You can argue the quality of a lineup with a couple other lenses, like whether it's better to have a clear number one or clear number two. That's not the argument. When you just compile the talent between the two drivers, I think Mercedes has it for sure over Ferrari and over McLaren and over Red Bull. Um, but the the reason that they have this lineup right now instead of like a Lewis and Valtteri lineup is because they didn't know when Lewis was going to step away. There was a legitimate worry that Lewis would have left the sport after the 2021 season. They had to promote Russell because... Russell is the future of Mercedes. They don't have another junior driver that's ready yet. I know, you know, there's hype about Vesti had a good season in Formula 2 and uh, Kimi Antonelli is is an incredible young driver in, in Formula Regionals right now. Um, and they have some other good junior drivers as well and karting and whatnot. But th- they're all really far away. And Vesti isn't, you know, as uh, highly touted as George Russell ever was. Russell is the future. So they had to promote him. They have to think about the future. And I think some people are also thinking that they're trying to make this kind of like a torch passing thing where they start to prioritize George slowly a little bit so that, you know, he can be the alpha in the team when Lewis eventually does step away. So that's what I mean. Like the alternative is 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 what? That they they keep Valtteri, who looks like he is definitely declining in Formula One right now. They just don't have as good of a lineup. Like Valtteri in this really heated midfield fight with the other teams right now, Mercedes would not be scoring the points that they are right now. So I think it is better to have the two good drivers. Yes, the relationship doesn't look to be going very well. And if they did eventually contend, would they be taking points off each other? Maybe, but that's not a problem that they have to worry about right now. I think all they can do is try to keep them working together as a team. And then when that day comes, sort it out then. So honestly, I think Mercedes is doing things right. They're not trying to take a side because it doesn't make any sense to take Lewis's side, really, because he is, you know, the elder statesman in the team and he's not going to be around forever. So they don't want to, you know, frustrate George and have him leave before he ever gets the chance to be the alpha. So they have to think about the future with George, but they're also not going to screw over one of the best drivers of all time, the most successful driver they'll probably ever have within their team. And, you know, a legend of the sport and a driver who is still performing at a, at a high level in the sport. So it's, it's a really tough situation to handle. And I just don't see a better alternative. Is this completely ideal? No, but as I said, there's nothing better than they can really do. So I'll segue into another driver drama that happened this weekend. Let's discuss Alpine, a team I haven't talk, uh, talked about um, in a bit on this podcast. They did grab double points this weekend and were looking pretty solid, I guess. Um, they weren't terrible. like They've been at some uh, events this season since... It's probably since, you know, McLaren's arrival 
um, where I feel like Alpine just kind of also started to decline a little bit. Like they had some decent races at the beginning of the season, and now they're kind of just a team that's forgotten, I feel like, at most race weekends. But anyway, we're not talking about them because of their performance. We need to talk about what happened on the last lap. Basically, at the end of the race, both the Alpines were in touching distance of Alonso for P8. Ocon was ahead of Gasly because he pit uh, lap one under the safety car, which helped him undercut his teammate. And then on lap 47, Gasly came up to the back of Ocon, had the fresher tires, so Alpine ordered Ocon to let Gasly through to give him a shot at Alonso, who was eight seconds up the road. So Ocon did that, you know. Standard procedure, something that teams do all the time. It can be a little bit tricky sometimes with who's letting who through and whether there's something to really fight for, but this is for a P8, right? Completely normal. Then, on the penultimate lap, I believe, it became clear that Gasly was not going to pass Alonso as he was still a few seconds adrift, so the team asked Gasly to give Ocon the position back. That's where the contention came from Gasly. So, and I figured, you know what, instead of, you know, quoting as I did with Lewis Hamilton in the media pen, uh, Pierre Gasly's radio comments, I figured, you know, this is, this is public. Why don't we just play the clips? So let's listen. Okay, mate. Um, so got Esteban 2.4 behind. Uh, on the wall, uh, can we swap back around, please? Wait, what the fuck? You're kidding me, I What are you saying? Like, I was faster. I want pressure rubber. If you would not pass me, I would have overtake him anyway. Yeah, we discuss it in the office. Let's please swap around, please. Are you, are you serious? You're being serious? I started in front. I was in front of the whole race. You let him undercut me and then... Wait, I'm not, I'm not sure. Instructions come from the pit roll. Let's do it next time around, please. Turn 16. So after this initial order from the team and the reaction from Gasly, there's some radio silence while he completes about another lap of the race, and then he comes on the radio again in the second sector of the last lap. You confirm you want to swap? Hey, firm, mate. Hey, firm, please. Yeah, thank you. Complete job. Then he says nothing as he makes his way through the final sector, right to the final corner. Please, Pierre. I'm doing it. Copy. Thank you. Don't have to say anything now. We'll, we'll discuss it after. Okay, that's the check flag. It'll be scenario 12. Then more silence on the cooldown lap, just like Russell and Hamilton. Although, Gasly was certainly not calm in the cockpit. I mean, the onboard cameras showing Gasly just throwing up his hands in frustration, middle finger used in there. He was smacking the wheel and the halo multiple times. Honestly, kind of like a petulant child. It was a bit embarrassing, I must say. You know, and I, I like Pierre, so I'm not trying to, you know, completely just trash him because I think he had a point. I mean, Gasly, with a much cooler head after the race in the media pen, said that it was planned that Ocon would pit first to undercut him and then, of course, Gasly would catch up to him on the fresher rubber, and Ocon would let him through to not lose time, which is exactly how it played out. But he says they left out the part where, you know, they were going to invert the cars again. So 
that's kind of what I mean. Gasly did kind of have a point. Why does it matter to give the position back? It's not like the situation that played out in Hungary between Lewis and Valtteri several years ago where, you know, Lewis caught up to Valtteri, um, was quicker at the time, and this was for uh, the Ferraris were 1-2, Valtteri was in P3. They let Lewis go to try and pass the Ferraris. He was quicker than them, but he couldn't make the, the move. So then on the last lap, Lewis gave the podium back to Valtteri. This was one point. It was P8, or sorry, they were trying to get P8, but this was for P9 and P10. One point. So does it really need to, you know, have a switchback? Because at that point, it's the same amount of points for the team. Who really cares? That's kind of what Pierre was was getting at. Um, so there is a point to be made there. I don't understand why they felt the need to give uh, Ocon, um, you know, the, the position back. But at the same time, Pierre, you're kind of, you know, being a hypocrite there because it doesn't really warrant that reaction on public team radio and public onboard cameras as well. I mean, it's one point. Why are you so mad? It's 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 kind of silly. I mean, it feels like because it's just one point that obviously there's there's maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but speculation. Is there something going on behind closed doors at Alpine, like some frustration from his side? Because that seems a little bit of an overreaction for for something like this. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me, and it probably was not computing for him. You know, adrenaline running high because he was just in a Formula One car. So there is a bit of that. You know, he seemed a lot calmer in the media pen. But yeah, it's it's another thing. Like, does this driver lineup have problems as well? Because, yeah, that was uh, a bit strange. Ocon was chill. He was chill the whole time. Um, maybe he knew about this plan and Pierre did not. Because, yeah, Ocon was saying nothing. I think on his radio, he was just like, does he know that he's supposed to give the position back or or what? Like, that was that was it. It wasn't like, a, what the hell is he doing? Like, give it back to me. Like, it was. there was none of that. It was, he was chill. But then Pierre was losing it. So, kind of strange. Um Something to keep an eye on. Bruno Famine is kind of, I don't even know what his role is. He's not team principal, but he's running the show ever since uh, they dismissed Otmar back in uh, Belgium. He said, you know, we're going to talk about it behind, uh, you know, behind closed doors. Everything's fine. This driver lineup is fine. Of course, they're going to say that, right? But I figured I would share that part. So if you guys didn't see this, because, of course, you know, the broadcast not really focusing too much on the Alpines in a battle for P8 more so. What's going on at the end of the race between, I guess, at that point, it would have been Mercedes and Ferrari. And, of course, Red Bull uh, securing the Constructors' Championships and all that. So, yeah, um, that's kind of it there. We'll keep an eye on Alpine to see if anything is said more about that uh, in the next few weekends. So, more driver lineup talk. Alpha Tauri, because this is not so much about their P11 and P12 finish in the race, and Lawson once again finishing ahead of Sonoda in a pretty tight battle between the two of them. They announced their driver lineup for 2024. Silly season almost completely finished at this point. One seat, uh, one seat remains um, for Logan Sargent. The team have confirmed it will be Yuki Sonoda and Daniel Ricciardo next year in the Alpha Tauri. That leaves super sub Liam Lawson on the sidelines unless Williams snatch him from the Red Bull family to replace Sargent. 
though the rumor mill suggests that's unlikely to happen and that Red Bull have actually guaranteed Lawson a seat in 2025 at one of the teams, likely AlphaTauri. Um, and if Williams were to go another direction, this also in the rumor mill, that it would likely be someone like Felipe Drogovic, which I think is an interesting one um, because Logan did have a bit of a shocker weekend again not doing himself any favors. He might be out of Formula One after waiting this long for another American driver. He has not really, you know, lived up to the hopes that he would be a massive upgrade over Latifi and maybe a rookie with some solid pace, some raw pace. He is uh, leading the Destructors Championships that uh, some people like to to uh point out on social media just how much money each driver has cost their team in in crashes he's cost them 2.7 million dollars estimated this year that is tough for a team like Williams who is probably one of the more cash strapped you know organizations in Formula One so yeah you know I gave my thoughts last week on what should happen and what I think will happen in AlphaTauri and I was obviously wrong I thought that it would maybe be Daniel and Lawson next year. I think Daniel and Liam would have been a very interesting lineup. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. Yuki Sonoda, I think, made the most sense to drop. He's had a great year, but he's never going to be in the Red Bull seat. So what's the point of keeping him around? I think Ricardo and Lawson are both drivers who have a chance to be in Red Bull one day. Daniel in the short term in 2025, Liam in the long term. It will never be it will never be Yuki. So especially when there are rumors that uh when Honda joins Aston Martin in 26 that Aston Martin might want Yuki Sonoda and by that time you know Fernando Alonso might be long gone out of the sport. They're going to need another driver to pair with Lance Stroll if he's still around. Yuki Sonoda might be that guy. So what's the point of keeping him in AlphaTauri? You know, it's not like he is so solid like Pierre was. I understood wanting to keep Pierre in AlphaTauri because he really was a team leader and solid there. Yuki is not quite on that level in my opinion. So it is a bit strange for me to that, that, that they feel the need to keep him for a fourth year. I don't know if it's really another year is really going to help him improve that much more. So... Yeah, that's a tough one as well. I think it. I think Liam's done enough already that he deserved a seat next year, not having to wait. But if that is true, they've guaranteed him one in 2025. Red Bull's not willing to, you know, give him up to another team like Williams. Then that might be what happens. And you know, when Paris is gone out of the Red Bull family in 2025, which I think is almost guaranteed at this point. I mean. The way Perez has been performing is, is pretty shocking. They say he's back next year, but Red Bull's probably still going to dominate next year, and that's keeping Perez comfortable in that seat. So, yeah, I think when Perez leaves, that's going to open up that spot for Lawson. They're probably still going to hold on to Yuki and Daniel unless one of them have a shocker next year. So that's kind of how it will go down most likely. So now let's get to the results. Max Verstappen back to the top of the table. A superb win. P2 for Lando. A second straight weekend followed by his teammate Oscar Piastri. Double podium for McLaren. Great job from them. Then Charles Leclerc with a nice drive to maximize uh, P4. Lewis Hamilton then was in P5. That's seven straight top six finishes 
for the seven-time world champion. Hamilton held off Carlos Sainz at the line, who took P6. Then Russell was a bit further adrift, not making his one-stop work. He was P7. Then Fernando Alonso in P8, unhappy with his strategy throughout the race. Not sure he had the pace anyway, though, to challenge any uh, further ahead up the grid. I think P8 was the maximum for him. Shame to see the fall off from this Aston Martin team, um, as I didn't really mention them in my breakdowns. Then it was the Alpines, of course, P9 Esteban Ocon, P10, the angry Pierre Gasly. Driver standings, Max Verstappen right on 400 points, leading the way he can get that done in Qatar. Sergio Perez, 223. He is in second, of course. Lewis Hamilton extends his spot up on third, um, ahead of Fernando Alonso. Fernando Alonso a little bit further back now. 174 points for him. So now he has to worry about Carlos Sainz, who's coming quick. Sainz on, at 150, Charles Leclerc on 135, and then George Russell and Lando Norris. Lando Norris actually overtaking Russell. I have this wrong. I have Russell ahead of Norris. It is Norris ahead of Russell based on countback. They're both on 115, so... How about that? Russell all the way down at P8 in the championship now, where Lewis is up in P3 trying to catch the back of a Red Bull. This RB19, one of the most dominant the sport has ever seen. And Lewis is challenging for P2 in the championship while his teammate is P8. Yeah, um, turns out that situations can, uh, you know, really make the standings look a lot different. I know people had a lot of things to say about Lewis last year when Russell beat him. Maybe this is my inner Lewis fandom coming to uh, my my driver's defense. But anyway, yeah, I don't think Russell's been as bad as, you know, 85 points behind, or I guess it's not 85 points, sorry, 75 points behind Lewis. That isn't an accurate representation of how this season has gone for those two drivers. But I don't think last season was accurate either. Um, Lewis had a couple retirements more than Russell last year. Anyway, this is just the standings. Come on. Oscar Piastri, he is now ahead of Lance Stroll. He's at 57 points. Lance Stroll on 47. And then Pierre Gasly right behind Stroll, one point behind. He's on 46. Looking at the Constructors, Red Bull Constructors champions on 623 points. Then Mercedes with 305. Ferrari, 285 20 point difference that is pretty small then it's Aston Martin trying to hold off McLaren Aston's on 221 so quite a ways back from Ferrari as well McLaren is on 172 about 50 points Alpine at 84 then Williams 21 Haas 12 Alpha Romeo 10 Alpha Tauri 5 the bottom four not scoring any points in Japan now the prize demise and surprise Red Bull they get my prize, of course. They are the Constructors' champions. What else can be said about them this weekend? Just an incredible job. They're back. You know, they can put the Singapore, uh, you know, shenanigans behind them. They are still the dominant unit uh, that they are. This is one of the most dominant Constructors' wins ever. Uh, <laughs> like I said early on in the at the beginning of my race recap. You've just run out of things to mention when it comes to this team right now. So they are the prize of the weekend, I think. And I would say they're 
definitely strong, strong, strong favorites going into 2025 at this point with no team really making the inroads that they needed to throughout the season, in my opinion. The demise, this was an easy one. Um, I mean, there were other arguments. Perez had a horrible, horrible race, but he's still safe for next year. I think he's fine. It's just one bad kind of right off of a race. Um, you know, Williams had a double retirement, blah, blah, blah. Logan Sargent, just just Logan Sargent has to be the demise. I think he may have been the second driver, you know, to lose his seat in Japan in the past two years because Mick Schumacher, as I joked last episode, with his crash in Japan last year on uh, the cooldown lap in practice, he lost his half seat. Of course, that's not actually how it went down. And I'm not saying Logan has definitely lost his seat from what he did here, but a crash very early on in qualifying, P20 start, actually pit lane start, and then a really bad, horrible lockup into the hairpin where he just punted off Valtteri Bottas and ruined his race. Just shocking stuff from Logan again. So, yeah, no pace and poor racecraft, and it seems like he's really starting to feel the pressure now and things just start to really go downhill. Like, he's he's worse than he was earlier on in the season, I would say. he He's definitely feeling down on himself, lost confidence and feeling the pressure. And this was just a really, really bad showing from him. Then the surprise for me is honestly, I was thinking maybe I thought Williams would be better. I thought Mercedes would be better. And I thought Ferrari would be worse. I thought all of those would maybe be surprises, but I haven't done, you know, an off the table one for the surprise in a while. I'm just going with how boring the race was. I think, uh, Maybe it's recency bias with how great Zanvoort, Monza, and um, you know Marina Bay were. This one was a stinker, in my opinion. I, I didn't really enjoy this race at all. Uh, I thought even the midfield fights that we typically have can get pretty spicy. There was absolutely nothing going on at the back of the field because of all the retirements. Yeah, it was it was just lame. We had the bit of Mercedes drama and then a little bit of a fight with Ferrari between them, but even that, like that was for P5 in the race, like it's not even a podium. Like the podium was set, great for Oscar and McLaren, but them dominating the the best of the rest fight even just made the race worse. So, yeah, surprised to uh have such a boring race in Suzuka, although I will say it is a great track and it is always a treat to watch these cars take this track on in qualifying but that will do it for episode 72 of break bias i'm your host brad kramer and i'll be back next week to preview f1's return to qatar it's a sprint weekend guys remember that we have three in the next four races and max verstappen does have a chance to become a three-time world champion on a saturday (laughs) crazy that's got to be a first right i mean come on Anyway, goodbye.